and part one of a four-part series on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So if you didn't know, it's the 50th anniversary since we landed on the moon, and uh, I got some pretty cool guests on here to talk about that, people who were actually there and lived it and experienced it. So check out all... This is all coming, this whole series, four parts. This is part one I got on Don Isles, and he was literally there working for NASA and MIT, and he programmed the moon landing guidance computer. Like the moon landing phase for the lunar module's onboard computer, he literally programmed that. And so he just has a ton of stories and information uh, about being there at this time, you know, and seeing all this stuff. So it was really such a treat to to talk to Don and, you know, hear his stories and his perspective and everything like that. And uh, he did some crazy stuff for Apollo 14. He was very responsible for that being a success, but uh, I'll let Don tell you about that. Uh, but without further ado, let's just get to the uh, episode series part one of the uh, moon landing 50th anniversary with Don Isles. And boom, we are going. How you doing, Don? Very well. Pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, I am pretty excited to talk to you. You you were there. You lived during the the Apollo stuff. You were involved with it. It's so cool. I know. I was very lucky. It was a great six and a half years for me. Yeah, man. It's so fun because I'm just, you know, uh, I was born in 93, so missed all that stuff. And, you know, was first kind of exposed to it, I guess, and maybe like watching Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks, you know. And now I've really been digging into it and learning a bunch about it and, and, you know, learning about everything. And it's just so fun and exciting. I really, you know, wish I could have experienced it, but uh, I'm glad that all this stuff is still around and I get to talk to people like you and and kind of experience it now. So it is, it's pretty exciting. Well, that's great to hear. I hope you have a chance to experience some more exciting space travel uh, as well. Yes. Yeah. You mean with, uh, you know, hopefully new stuff on the horizon coming up, new space exploration? We can, we can hope so. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully. Whew, man. Well, you are the author of Sunburst and Luminary, uh, an Apollo memoir, which uh, is very interesting. So I guess real quick, why is it called Sunburst and Luminary? Why is that the title? Uh, those were the names of two of the programs for the lunar module. Uh that uh, I helped build. Sunburst was the program for the LIM-1 mission that flew in January of 1968, and Luminary was the program for the onboard computer for all the uh, lunar landing missions, in fact, for every mission from Apollo uh, 10 forward, uh, Apollo 9 forward. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, some people think of the programs as being unique for each mission, but in fact, they were... Uh, uh, they evolved gradually. It's more capability was added and as problems were found. Um, uh, Luminary started as a version of Sunburst, uh, Sundance, which was a version of Sunburst. There's a whole genealogy of these programs. Yeah. 
But at any rate, uh, Luminary Revision 99 flew the Apollo 11 mission, uh, and it got up to Revision 210, oh. uh, which flew the Apollo 15, 16, and 17 missions. Oh, okay. Makes sense. It, they were just iterations on, e, on the previous one that just kept getting better and working out the bugs and stuff, right? Precisely. Cool. And then, okay, this is just something I want to open with, too, because I saw this. I was watching an interview with you, and um, you talked about the uh, that you saw yourself played by an actor in the, uh, it was a 1998 series called uh, From the Earth to the Moon. You remember that? Yeah. And you said, what, what, yeah, what did you think of that portrayal? Well, that was weird, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> I, I had been in contact with the screenwriter, uh, Eric Bork, for that episode. And I'm happy to say that he did pick up on a lot of what I told him. And the uh, technical parts of that were actually fairly accurate. Uh, I didn't really recognize myself in the, uh, in the portrayal, however. I think there'd been a confusion of stories. I think I had mentioned in one of my tellings that my colleague, Alan Klump, had gone to sleep in the only sofa that was available in the building, which was in the women's room. Oh. Uh, so they took off from that to show me being asleep with a, a very nice looking golden retriever that uh, I understood later just happened to be on the set. <laughs> and uh, I marched into the room where the mission was being monitored. And I said, bring me coffee and bring me so-and-so. I forget the name, which it's not the sort of thing I or anyone else would ever have said. We would have been laughed at to walk right. in. <laughs> that demanding sort of tone of voice. Um, yeah. That's, that's not the way the, uh, that's not the culture that was there. It was not like a, a demanding type of, <laughs> of situation with everybody there. Yeah, pre precisely. And, and no one, no one wanted to be a prima donna. And, you know, the basic idea for that uh, workaround was mine but it really was a team effort in the sense that some more people, you know, took took what I suggested up to the simulator, you know, our simulator, and tried it out. And, of course, it was also sent down to Houston uh, where they tried it out in their simulator. We both, uh, in both cases, we crashed the first try because there was still another loose end to be dealt with. Um, but taking all that into consideration, it was uh, it was a team effort. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's always funny. The, uh, I mean, especially for you to experience that the, uh, you know, where you lived a scene and then to see it, you know, portrayed again on film. I, there's always got to be discrepancies, I'm sure, but they got to dramatize it up for sure. Well, you know, I wish I had uh, urged myself to play the part myself. Oh you know, yeah. I, I think the makeup artist could probably have uh, taken you know uh, however many years off my life. Yeah. And and fun to do, and perhaps you know, perhaps another. Uh, interesting uh, talking point for the show but they had already cast it and i didn't think to make that argument so mm -hmm. I yeah. my <laughs> that would have been fun maybe another opportunity will come up who knows well i think next time around it'll have to be an actor playing me <laughs> it's been too long maybe yeah <laughs> yeah no, I'd uh, i can collect the royalties but not necessarily do the work right <laughs> Um, okay, cool. So like, yeah, I want to get into all this stuff and, you know, um, your book and I know we, we, you talk about a lot about kind of the sixties culture and everything. So I want to get into that. Um, but let's just start kind of with, you know, your background and, you know, how you got started, what your experiences was you, you went to college and, and I don't know, I guess just, can you start with that kind of your, your beginnings and getting into all this stuff? 
Well, sure. Um, I came from the South. I was born in Atlanta and sort of grew up more in Memphis than anywhere else. But at the time it came to go to college, I knew I wanted to get away from uh, uh, that environment. And uh, so I applied to Boston University, where I eventually graduated. Um, I walked around town trying to get a job, as I thought I should, as I needed to. Mm -hmm. And uh, more or less... uh, on the spur of the moment, walked into the MIT Instrumentation Laboratory, where I was handed a long questionnaire to fill out, which I did on the spot. And then the receptionist asked me if I wanted to speak to the uh, chief personnel officer, uh, John McCarthy, uh, at that time. And I said, sure. And I suddenly realized that at all these other depressing interviews, I'd been trying to sell myself uh, but he was suddenly trying to sell me on the laboratory why I should come and work there, which was you know, a refreshing change, shall we say. But they were hiring a lot of people at that point. They realized that the software effort needed to be reinforced. Uh, he emphasized that at the lab, uh, it was not a regimented sort of culture, that the only thing that mattered was making it work. Uh, it was a culture sort of created by Doc Draper, the famous uh, uh, MIT professor um, mm-hmm. who had joined MIT in 1922 and compiled the longest transcript ever anyone ever had and became the head of the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics and founded uh, this laboratory called the Instrumentation Laboratory that had gotten the job for Apollo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at any rate, my information was circulated and I was interviewed by two different managers who needed uh, some help. And uh, the one I chose was uh, the job uh, that I talked to a man named George Cherry about. Uh, Cherry figures in the Apollo program in several different ways. Uh, Interestingly enough, he was uh, influential in the choice of the uh, autopilot design, the control system design for the Apollo spacecraft, Mm -hmm. and also originated the equation that was used for the lunar landing, an equation was capable of uh, satisfying the fairly complex end conditions that you needed to, to do to land safely. But by the time uh, I was hired, he was uh, the project manager, I believe was the right term, for the LIM software, mm-hmm. and the people to help write the LIM software. And I had a choice between the two positions, but that was the one that I took, uh, I'm happy to say. Yeah. And um, so I sat at a desk for a couple of weeks reading manuals that didn't really mean much to me because I didn't quite know what I was going to be doing with them yet. But then I was, uh, I met a guy named Alan Klump, uh, and I was assigned to him to work with him. Uh, His job was the the lunar landings, the uh, starting with the George Cherry's equation, Mm -hmm. turning into a workable system that could fit in the computer. And so I worked with him for the entire span of Apollo. And uh, my good luck continued. Not only was I hired, but I was put to work on the lunar landing phase of the mission, which was far the most complex and you could say dangerous uh, and exciting uh, phase of the mission. And in turn brought me uh, all the interesting experiences that I talk about in the book. Mm Mm-hmm. So when you were, you know, when you're picking your college and, and going to school, was this like, was doing this on your radar at all? Was this something that you had seen for yourself or what were, what did you kind of have planned, if, if any? 
uh, if any, is, is the right way to put it. No, I did not have this plan. I wouldn't have dreamed of this. Uh, yeah. So I followed the space program like any kid interested in science would, but not to, you know, I certainly had no sense that my destiny was to play a part in it. Um, I was a liberal arts major and not not at all sure what I really wanted to study. And you could see that in my transcript. I uh, thought I might be a philosophy major, but I uh, um, was turned off, shall we say, by the head of the department. Um, I kind of by default became a, a math major and mm-hmm. uh, not a very good one either. I hated differential equations. What I liked was things like symbolic logic. And that, of course, was just the sort of math that uh, did turn out to be uh, useful. Oh, okay. That works out. Um, so I was hired and, uh, um, in the summer of 1966, and about three years later, we landed on the moon. Yeah. Okay, so you get hired at, with MIT, and they're responsible for the the Apollo guidance system. And then, so your part in that was to program the lunar landing phase um, for the LAMS onboard computers, correct? That's correct. So can you just kind of, you know, just talk about, I mean, exactly what that is and what part of the mission that is, and just like the extreme difficulty of that? Uh, the difficulty came from the limited resources of our computer, the fact that its processing time uh, and its memory capacity was, uh, you know, by modern standards, uh, uh, pathetic. Um, what the lunar landing consists of is, well, to go back a little bit, the, uh, the two spacecraft, while the command module, or I should say the command and service module coupled with the limb, arrive in lunar orbit, they do the burn to get into lunar orbit. Uh, at some point, the limb separates. Uh, at this, they're in a 60-mile circular orbit. Mm-hmm. At this, uh, the limb separates, and it first does a preliminary burn to drop the low point, uh, what we call the paraloon, mm-hmm. uh, seeing Greek and Latin roots, but uh, to drop the paraloon to a point about nine miles above the surface. And as we reach that point, uh, we begin the landing maneuver, which lasts somewhere around 12 minutes, uh, although there's some variability in that, depending on how much flying the astronaut has to do at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it starts it with the limb at something like 49 or 50,000 feet, uh, moving at the moon orbital velocity, which is about 3,800 miles per hour. Yeah. And in the course of the landing, it comes to a, a dead stop right side up on the uh, lunar surface. Yeah. Uh, landing is divided into three phases. Uh, there's the braking phase, which is by far the uh, longest, uh, when the limb is principally uh, thrusting against its motion, trying to uh, lose as much lateral, as much horizontal velocity as possible, should we say, Okay. As speed. Uh, but during that phase, the surface is not visible to the astronauts. Uh, I, I should qualify that a little bit. During the first part of that phase, they're rotated such that their uh, windows are facing down. In other words, you're flying feet first, facing down. And at okay. that point, they could track landmarks on the mm-hmm. surface. Mm-hmm. Um, but a bit later, they rotate to windows up, windows facing away from the moon. And that's because they need to get into a posture so that the landing radar can acquire the surface. Uh, because it's not safe to land without a double check on the inertial navigation. I see. Uh, 
an offshore navigation is wonderful, but it can't get you, it can't know your altitude above the lunar surface. Of course, given the uncertainties about that as well, yeah. uh, well, that it's safe to rely on that to know your altitude, which of course is a vital thing in the landing, mm -hmm. and goes for your speed across the surface. So acquiring um, the radar data is one of the important steps that happens during the braking phase. Uh, the other one is that uh, a moment called throttle down, which if you listen to the transcripts, uh, it always uh, causes some excitement when throttle down occurs. Mm -hmm. and because it's a pretty sensitive indicator of whether the guidance really knows what it's doing. Okay. Uh, the reason for that is that the lunar module engine, which is a uh, unprecedented engine for the time by being throttleable, but we're not allowed to operate it in the region between about 60% and 100%. So at the point where we drop down from 100% to a point below, six, below um, 60 is uh, that uh, throttle change has to happen in one fell swoop, and that's called throttle down. Uh, okay. So the braking phase continues, um, but at a point at about 7,500 feet above the moon, uh, we switch to the next phase, which we call the visibility phase. We do that by using the same equation, but, but switching the targets to a new set of targets. And during the visibility phase, the limb does initially pitch forward uh, such that the crew have a good view of the surface in front of them. Mm -hmm. um, that's another very exciting point in the mission because that's the where the astronaut wants to see the pattern of craters that he's looking for. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the visibility phase lasts something like 100 seconds, 105 seconds. Um, but the end of it depends on the astronaut, because at some point, as anticipated, somewhere usually in the neighborhood of 400 feet altitude, uh, the astronaut does take over in another mode that I would call a semi-manual mode. Okay. Uh, use the control stick to vector his thrust uh, and therefore move laterally uh, around the surface. Uh, but at the same time, the computer controls the throttle to maintain a constant rate of descent. Okay, I see. Now, this rate of descent, he can modify with a little toggle switch near the, the uh, commander's left hand. It works like the uh, speed control on your automatic speed control on your car. You can lift it up or down to add or, or uh, decrease by one foot per second your descent rate. So the computer saves the astronaut from having to manually operate the throttle with one hand and the attitude stick with the other. I see. Can be done, but it's a very challenging piloting job. Right. And in that mode, uh, he finally touches down after whatever amount of maneuvering is necessary. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay, that makes total sense. I didn't realize that at the end it was it was kind of the semi-automatic thing, but that makes sense. Is it so? Is that really just so because the the astronaut has um, they can see the the surface, and that just kind of allows them to land in a in a good spot? Uh, precisely. There 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 are two things that help them that the software does that that helps them to land in a good spot. One of them uh, is that during the visibility phase, uh, we compute and uh, display on the disk, display and keyboard, a number that tells the commander who's standing on the left side of the limb mm -hmm. where to look along a scale that's painted on his window. 
And if his eyes lined up properly, that point will show him the point that we're aiming at, that we're going to at that moment. Oh. By using the, the same control stick he would later use for attitude, but now he's using it just as a discrete controller. By clicking it left or right or, or forward or back, he can uh, redesignate, was the word we use. He can redesignate the landing spot. In other words, move it by a fixed amount um, in any direction. And he can use that for sort of gross adjustments of where he's going. Um, but then after he goes into the final landing phase, uh, which um, we call P66 um, in terms of the program numbers, mm-hmm. then he's flying uh, like a helicopter, essentially. He's, oh. uh, he's literally moving back and forth and forward and back under, you know, as we said, semi-manual control. And that gives him the final adjustment of where he's going to land. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Cool. And then so um, were you responsible for essentially writing the, the, you know, that whole autopilot program for that entire 12 minutes or what kind of what were you responsible for? Well, um, the way we use the word autopilot uh, applied to the control system. You know, I learned early on that guidance, navigation and control, that famous sort of trio, really are distinct disciplines. Oh, okay. Your navigation is about where are we and which way are we pointed. Uh, guidance is about uh, usually firing an engine to actually accomplish something, to go somewhere, uh, land on the moon. Uh, uh-huh. go uh, but finally, there's control, and the job of control is to obey the commands of the crew or of the guidance equation and to orient the spacecraft. So, uh, you know, to put it in the, at- the desired attitude, is the word we use, the desired orientation. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, but back to uh, what, it, so I had uh, nothing to do with the autopilot, the way we use the term, mm-hmm. uh, and not much to do with the navigation, um, but I was in the guidance area. So uh, that consisted of a uh, guidance equation that took the uh, state vector from navigation, which was the uh, position and velocity vectors. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, it had the targets that it was aiming for in terms of position and velocity, but also acceleration to control the attitude of the spacecraft at the end of that as it satisfied those conditions. And uh, it would, uh, based on the time remaining, uh, it would issue a command for the attitude of the spacecraft and for the uh, force that was desired. Um, now, I wrote most of that. Um, I wrote the, uh, the code, the sort of sequencing code that led up to the start of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I coded the guidance equation with the exception of one part that Alan Klump did, uh, the time that was in the um, uh, uh, denominator uh, of that equation. Uh, he, he wrote the, uh, the code that computed, computed that. Now, after the guidance equation finished, um, there was another surprisingly complex program to operate the throttle in response to the thrust level uh, desired by the guidance, and I wrote that. And uh, it was another program that translated our attitude command uh, and handed that to the autopilot, uh, a program called Find CDUW, and uh, Klump wrote that. So, um, and there were some other additional uh, pieces of software, smaller pieces, 
Uh, there was the Delta V monitor that monitored the engine. There was the uh, aborts monitor, which um, got us into trouble on Apollo 14. Yeah. Say the switch got us into trouble, but the aborts monitor was the code, my code, that I needed to figure out a way to defeat um, to uh, get around the shorted out switch. Mm -hmm. uh, as time went on, there were some other uh, pieces that I uh, ended up coding for some of the later missions. A, uh, a uh, operary terrain model, which made it possible to land after passing over a mountain or a deep valley without the uh, change in the terrain, confusing the navigation. Oh, okay. The, uh, there was a program called the Landing Analog Displays that operated some sort of steampunk-type uh, instruments on the lens panel. Huh. It was the backup to the computer's uh, disk key in terms of displaying some of the vital information, chiefly attitude and, um, and attitude rate. Mm -hmm. and, uh, a few other bits and pieces uh, were, were my contribution. Yeah. I probably wrote some well over 2,000 lines of code out of the, uh, the 36,000 or so that are in the computer. Man, it's crazy. It's cool to see how it is such like a... <clears throat> A team effort where everybody's working on these different pieces that all have to connect and, and speak to each other and everything. That's it's extremely interesting and and the uh, communication and teamwork that you guys must have is very cool. Um, but I'm curious about the kind of the uh, the equipment that you're you know writing this code on. What does what does that look like? Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. If you're picturing any sort of monitor or anything like that on our desks, you got it wrong uh, <laughs> because we didn't have those yet. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, so what we, uh, we use paper. Um, the program itself would fit in one book about six inches thick, uh, but it, was, it would all fit in one book. So in that sense, it was possible to get your, your mind around it. Uh, the way we modified that I should say something about the assembler, uh, which was the creation of Hugh Blair Smith, um, who was also uh, one of the designers of the languages that computer used. Mm -hmm. But the assembler was what took our input and incorporated it into these growing programs as they progressed. Um, and um, it spit out at each stage, it spit out a listing which you could get extra copies of if you needed them, so forth, needed them and so forth. But in order to add something new uh, or to change something, we used punch cards. And the, uh, the actual machine that we used, the place where our hands actually touched the clay, was uh, a key punch machine. Wow. And uh, we were, uh, I forget the exact dimensions, but we were using the standard IBM uh, punch cards and uh, you could then write your new lines of code on the punch cards with uh, numbers on them that told the assembler where they need to be inserted. And um, that was how we, uh, we actually wrote the code. Right. Uh, some people wrote out every step ahead of time. Uh, some people sort of programmed uh, as they went along. Some people went with rough notes and, and then, you know, improvised, so to speak. But uh, that was how we did that. Man. There were keep machines all over the building. Uh, right. Locations. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, I never really had thought about that. But um, 
makes sense that there wasn't any monitors and and that's <laughs> such a cool cool kind of way with the punch cards that it all worked out but it it worked for the time huh it did um okay cool so i ha- i think i have a pretty good understanding of you know how this kind of worked and you know what you were involved with and everything um so when i know i mean you started uh for sure you used it on apollo 11 but didn't you wasn't this kind of also tested in an earlier mission, like Apollo 5 or something? Well, uh, there's a story there. Um, I mentioned that the uh, Delta V monitor was a piece of code that I'd written. Uh, we were meant to have a rehearsal. Uh, we were meant to run a version of the software that paralleled the lunar landing on Apollo 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as it happened, we didn't. Um, what happened was that um, on the burn that preceded the landing, I mentioned it earlier, the descent orbit insertion that brought the uh, limb in a lunar mission would bring the limb down from a, a circular 60-mile or, uh, orbit to a 60-by-nine orbit, mm-hmm. the now point being where the landing would start. Right. Uh, there was a burn that was meant to be equivalent to that in the limb one mission, in the Apollo 5 mission. Um, and that um, burn was to be done under the control of the computer. Uh, we issued the engine on. We heard from Houston someone say engine on. And then a few seconds later, engine off. And it turned out that my Delta V monitor had sent an off signal. Um, now, why? Mm-hmm. Uh, this, was a lesson, uh, this was a lesson that I think we absorbed for the future. But what had happened was that there had been some concern at the last minute by the engine manufacturer about leaky valves in the engine. And for that reason, an operational decision was made to delay the arming of the engine. It was the arming of the engine that allowed them the helium that pressurized the tanks that made it possible to actually operate the engine. Mm-hmm. They delayed the arming of the engine. And as a matter of fact, it didn't actually occur until over one second after the engine on command. So the engine started late because the fuel pump was turned on late. Um. And our code had done exactly as specified. Um, I will say that we weren't wise enough at that point just to go back and say, look, why are we issuing this engine off command? What's so urgent about it? But if the engine is slow to come up, why is it such a big deal? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, we and, and maybe especially I were, um, were assuming that the requirements that we were working from uh, were correct and necessary. Mm-hmm. So it did call for the engine to be uh, shut off if, in fact, after the first period of time, it uh, hadn't come up to thrust. So that basically uh, ruined the mission from the point of view of the primary guidance system. Uh, Houston's main objectives were to test the propulsion systems, mm-hmm. uh, to burns each with the decent engine and the ascent engine. And what they ended up doing was, in fact, uh, turning off the primary guidance system and accomplishing those burns under ground control. And so the long burn of the descent engine, which was going to be controlled by our guidance equation, did not, well, it occurred, but it wasn't controlled by our guidance equation. I see. So the first time anything other than a few bits and pieces of my code ran uh, was on Apollo 11. Yeah. December, uh, because... Uh, the Apollo 9 and Apollo 10 missions did not do anything that parallel the landing. Okay. In terms of firing. Right. 
so really the the whole you know kind of issue with Apollo five and and not having it or having the engines turn off again was really just kind of a miscommunication. Precisely. Whew, man. One of the lessons we learned. And also just to have a little bit of skepticism about anything to do with decent engines. Mm-hmm. Man, crazy. Okay, so then that happens. And then the next real test is Apollo 11 with, you know, astronauts inside. <laughs> I can imagine that was a little nerve-wracking. Um. It was nerve-wracking, but I think it was more exciting than nerve-wracking. Good. Uh, you know, I think in the abstract, we understood that we were, you know, dealing with men's lives and so forth. But maybe it's a, uh, a, a characteristic of young people not to worry quite so much. You know, mm-hmm. I was having the time of my life, and it was uh, uh, I was not feeling apprehensive as, as the landing started. I began to feel apprehensive a few minutes later, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can we get into that? Like what was, so what was that whole issue with, um, cause uh, Neil Armstrong had to kind of take over control or something like that. Right. Well, that, that's no, uh, he did not, he did not take off over control in any way that wasn't already planned before the mission. Oh, okay. Um, what happened was that he, uh, the computer experienced five alarms of the type that no one ever expected to come up in flight. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, it did impact the landing as a distraction. Uh, if you read the debriefing report, Neil talks about that, how you know, distracted by making sure the landing was still flying and so forth. He, uh, he did not make earlier adjustments in where he was heading. And when he did finally get into the uh, final program and the alarms lit up because the load on the computer was much lighter at that point, Mm-hmm. Uh, and he actually took much longer maneuvering to find a safe spot than anyone did, any astronaut did in later missions. Okay. Um, so in that sense, it impacted the landing. What was happening was that 13% of the computer's processing time was being uh, stolen away by a, an obscure effect that uh, was not widely known. Uh, it can happen by chance. And which, in fact, did happen on that mission. It had to do with the phase angle between two 800 hertz power supplies. But as a, and it also had to do with the settings of the cockpit switches having to do with the rendezvous radar. Uh, almost no one understands uh, the details of, of, of this. And um, the definitive paper on it, it's my paper, that's uh, online at donhouse.com slash capital LM. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, essentially, a resolver that had to figure out the angle of the racket trunnion of the rendezvous radar was being driven by contradictory signals. It was though the resolver was looking for an angle whose sine and cosine were both zero, which of course doesn't exist. Uh-huh. Uh, was thus uh, sending uh, a storm of counting pulses to the computer. And the way that was uh, implemented was each of those pulses took away one memory cycle, and enough of this counting was going on to take away the 13% of the time. Uh, The software responded to that by doing, uh, well, uh, what happened as a result of that, to get into a little more detail, is that... uh, some of the jobs that were scheduled in the computer were not 
completing. Therefore, they were holding on to their queue space. And the alarm was issued when the operating system, which we call the executive, when it realized its queue space was too full to schedule a new job, then in fact it issued the alarm. Um, the jobs weren't completing because uh, our time had been uh, uh, decreased, you know, it had been taken away, mm-hmm. you know, 13%. Uh, now, what happened when that alarm was issued is that we did something that we called a restart. And it was a capability that was put in so that the limb could keep flying, even if there were power fluctuations. Uh, you know what happens when your your desktop computer, if the, if the lights flicker, mm-hmm. uh, you know it it it, it shuts down. Right. Uh, we couldn't really afford to have that happen. Yeah. Landing if we could help it, and so this system was put in place of tables that kept track of where each computation was where in the process each computation was, uh-huh. using those tables, as a result of the restart, the, the present software was flushed. And using these tables, it was reconstructed. And all this could happen on the fly, uh, seamlessly. And um, as I say, that was meant originally to deal with a hardware problem, fluctuation of the power. Mm-hmm. Um, but a guy named Charlie Muntz, um, who, in a way, is the prototype of the character in Goodwill Hunting, by the way. Oh. But uh, he had the inspiration when he was coding the executive, what do I do if the queues are full? And he decided to issue, to create a software restart. In other words, the same sort of flushing and reconstruction, but this time initiated by the software rather than by a hardware problem. Mm-hmm. And that uh, saved the mission, because by doing these restarts, we shed load and um, there were some funny things that happened, such as the displays went blank a couple of times during the visibility phase. But the essential uh, computations, the essential actions did occur, and we were able to work through it and land. Man, it always amazes me the, uh, the foresight that you guys had to do that, to put that stuff in where, you know, to think about the power fluctuations and, you know, all these different scenarios and how you could work through them. It just, there's just so many things. And it seems like you guys thought of, you know, nearly everything, you know, nearly everything. And yeah. that was the things we, the things that really got us were things we hadn't thought of. Yeah. Thought of. You know, uh, um, we, we, we wanted to be very careful. We wanted to understand, we wanted to not overlook any clues. And I think we were pretty good about that. If we saw something funny going on, to run it down, really, in an intellectually honest way, uh, uh, understand it. And, and understand if we didn't understand, if you see what I mean? Uh, we know what we didn't know. Right. And, um, and that did lead to trying to think of everything trying to fix everything we could think of. And uh, we hope that would put us in a better position than the things that we hadn't anticipated, that no one could anticipate perhaps happened. Yeah. So, um, so when these missions are taking place and, and you know, the lunar landing is, is taking place, where are you in mission control or where are you at at this time? No, I'm not. I'm in a, a room in our laboratory in Cambridge. Uh, okay. Uh, we call it the classroom. It's mm-hmm. used sometimes, but that's uh, you know a fairly good sized room. Uh, we had a spark box that connected to mission, connected us to uh, 
Well, what we heard on the squawk box was the conversation between the ground and the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had telephone lines that linked us to our own representatives who were at Mission Control. Okay. Uh, not, in, not in the famous front room, but in one of the back rooms. Mm-hmm. It's a hierarchical thing. You know, uh, Mission Control itself, uh, the back rooms, and they in turn could call on us. Um, during Apollo 11, you know, it was all happening so quickly, there was no way we could ever put it all from Cambridge. It would have been, would have been uh, pretty much impossible. Yeah. If we had some, which we didn't, we were uh, probably the scariest people on the planet because we, we understood better how radical what was happening inside the computer was. Um, but um, I forget where I was, but describing the hierarchy with, uh, between mission control and us in Cambridge, on Apollo 14, where there were a couple of hours available, we did get involved from Cambridge, as you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can we, let's get into the Apollo 14 mission. Can you tell us about that whole thing and, and basically the the story on that? Well, we were talking about it earlier. That's that's the, the episode that was captured in that uh, TV show in 1996. Or was it 98? Yeah. Uh, 98. 98, yeah. The HBO um, series, yeah. It was a, a prosaic matter of a shorted-out switch. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there was some metal, some metallic contamination in that switch that floating around in zero-G uh, closed the contact. And so Mission Control noticed at a point, I think about three hours before we were due to do the, due to do the landing, mm-hmm. uh, that a signal was coming from this switch. And it had no consequence at that point. Um, but the switch in question was the abort switch, which during the lunar landing from engine on forward was available to the astronaut to push that button and immediately be switched into one of the abort programs that would boost him back to lunar orbit uh, and safety Okay. Uh, in case something went badly wrong during the descent. Uh-huh. So um, the fact that the switch was sending the spurious signal three hours before the lunar landing uh, was inconsequential, but if, but if the signal occurred during the lunar landing, it would basically spoil the mission. Right, I see. And went back to lunar orbit, it would not be possible to recycle and try again. And so um, the question was, how do we make the computer insensitive to the switch? It was my code that uh, looked at the switch and initiated the abort if necessary. Um, so it was my problem to solve. Yeah. A guy named Bruce McCoy came and told me about it. I, I wasn't actually in the monitoring room at that point. I, you know, I was going to be there during the landing a little later, but I was in my own office. He came to tell me. Uh, we walked to another office that had a uh, copy of the exact computer program that was on the limb mm-hmm. and the code. Um, the, the, the crux of the problem was that at ignition, we turned the monitor on. Right. So um, this, there would be a period of time would have to elapse before we could get back in there and turn it back off. You know, we could have turned it off, you know, uh-huh. using the, to, to access the, the flag word that turned it on. But uh, there would be a period of vulnerability. And that period would come just as we were lighting the engine. And there was going to be vibration. And who knows how the metallic contamination might react to that. Okay. And operationally, even if the abort occurred at the very beginning, it still would have been difficult on the next go around to do a landing. Okay. It might have been, but, um, but then we might have been subject to the same problem. 
So it turned out the only way to bulletproof the monitor and make it insensitive to the switch was to tell it that the board was already in progress. Huh. Now, that was a matter of uh, setting a register, of a node register to the abort number. It did not actually make the abort happen. You had to actually schedule something to make the abort happen. Mm-hmm. That was the first step in the procedure. And that got us past that uh, period of vulnerability right after admission. But then there were several more steps to the procedure necessary to clean up because there were some consequences of, of having... Uh, Put the uh, import number where the landing number should have been. Uh, so there were a few more steps we had to. Uh, following ignition, we could then use the explicit method of turning off the monitor. Uh, we also had to make a uh, an input to turn on the guidance equation because the actual uh, piece of code that would have actually activated the guidance uh, was a piece that did not happen because. Uh, of the, of the mode register being set for the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And so the throttling up of the engine, which is something that had to happen 26 seconds after the engine was lit, uh, that would not occur automatically. So uh, one part of the procedure was to have the astronaut use the manual throttle to throttle the engine up to maximum uh-huh. at that 20 seconds, 26 seconds after ignition. Okay. And that was a really sensitive point. We really wanted to get the engine throttled up as close as possible to that exact time, uh, because a lot depended on that. Uh, so that, with that in a nutshell, was the procedure to receive it, receive the monitor when the bolt was in progress, mm-hmm. uh, get past the critical period, uh, then clean up afterwards. Okay, I see. And so what? And so the. Uh... The astronauts had to type in. You you pr- got this whole procedure written out, and then they had to uh, you you fed it to them, and they had to copy the procedure up up in their spacecraft. That's that's exactly right. And uh, type it into the disky. Uh, there was something like sixty one keystrokes involved, uh, plus the actions with the throttle. Right. Uh, the keystrokes used this uh, this lovely uh, verb noun language that had been invented uh, as the uh, uh, as the language to be spoken in both directions between the computer and the crew, uh-huh. which turned out to work very well. But uh, you know, a verb might be change bit, uh, and then you would give the address, and then you give the one or a zero depending on which way you wanted to change the bit. So there were there was a sentence that you could write in this uh, keyboard language that would do that. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That's cool. And then, so uh, so it all worked out. Everything was good then. It worked out. <laughs> There's one more scare in that mission, of course. Oh, what was that? Well, uh, the fact that the landing radar did not, not acquire the surface when it was expected to. Oh, yikes. Uh, we mentioned the landing radar before. It was a necessary part of the landing. Really, uh, it was a mission rule that if your landing radar hadn't acquired the surface by some altitude, I believe it may have been 15,000 feet, uh, that you were obliged to quit the landing. Yeah. And uh, we got pretty close to that point where Mission Control made one of its inspired calls to uh, cycle the circuit breaker on the landing radar, basically turn it off and back on. Mm-hmm. And like other devices, that straightened it out. Uh, yeah. uh, what had happened, you know, there was some thought, some worry on my part that something about the procedure that we had overlooked could have impacted the landing radar and resulted in that 
but it did get figured out later. Um, it turned out that um, even before the landing started, landing radar had uh, picked up the surface uh, because of the attitude the limb was in and so forth, picked up the surface with such, with such strength that it caused it to switch into a different mode. Um, and I'm not sure I totally understand the problem myself, but uh, something that reminds radar was somehow in the wrong mode. And of course, by cycling the on-off switch, uh, that was uh, fixed. And uh, Alan Shepard didn't land on the moon after all. Right. That's, I love that the solution was to turn it off and turn it back on. That's what, <laughs> that's what it always is, it seems like. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, it's crazy. And then, yeah, you talked about the, you know, kind of the pressure with 14 really needing to be successful after 13 because it could have had, you know, could have been the end of the Apollo missions, right? I thought that. Yeah. Man. I'm, I'm not sure myself. But, uh, yeah. People who should have good opinions about it would think that that might have been the end. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's understandable, but who knows for sure. Luckily, it all worked out great. So, I think it was a wonderful thing that we were allowed to have a few more missions. I mean, we really did during that period after Apollo 13, really, when we had a, a, a gap before we started flying again and then flew at fairly long intervals. We really did advance the state of the art during that period. You know, things like I mentioned, like the terrain model, uh, some other changes that we were able to make to the software that made it uh, possible for the limb to land in more interesting sites mm-hmm. where they might have some interesting science to do. And I think both for the science and for the advance of the state of the art of, uh, you know, landing on a foreign body that you don't know everything about. Yeah. I think we did advance the state of the art. Right. Man, cool. It's so exciting. It's just so fun to hear about this stuff. So, okay, now I want to talk to kind of switch to, you know, what's going on, like culturally, when this is all happening in the 60s, and how that kind of affected you and stuff. So I mean, what was, we kind of, you mentioned it real quickly before, but kind of what was sort of the workplace culture and um, like management style at, you know, MIT and NASA at the time? Well, at MIT and NASA, you say. I mean, at MIT, I think, I, 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 I don't, well, I, there were similarities, of course there were, but, uh, you know, at MIT, we were in a culture that had been created by Doc Draper quite consciously. He wanted yeah. to have any democracy, as he put it, where, you know, talent would rule. And, um, and I think he achieved that. And I think our managers, um, you know, it was not the sort of place where you saw organization charts. Uh, they did have them. Uh, I talked to Norm Sears about it not too so long ago, and he said, yeah, we had them. Uh, you know, we weren't supposed to be thinking in those terms. Uh, it was a famous story, actually. Uh, um, I wasn't there, of course. It was before my time, but Doc Draper is in a room, and he's talking to a bunch of uh, 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 high-ranking military officers uh, about some system that he proposes that the lab's going to figure out how to do for them or build for them. And uh, one of the admirals or generals says, well, how are you going to organize this effort? Uh, so Doc stands up to the blackboard and ex- extemporaneously he draw- draws an org chart. Um, and uh, 
um, and you know the the military guys are satisfied, and, and they leave, and then Doc racer and he starts erasing it, and and uh, somebody says, "No, Doc, that's good. Don't erase that." And he says, "Oh, never mind. You'll figure it out." And um, and um, so that that really did characterize the way we were. I think consciously the managers. Uh, I think they realized that if we were going to accomplish the job, they had to trust us. They had to trust even the, you know, the junior people like me. And I think they saw it as their business to sort of protect us from some of the pressure, to protect us from some of the um, shit coming from above. Um, that's too strong a word, it was, uh, but um, to, to make it easier for us to have to give us the freedom to do the job. There was no question that we were motivated. You know, people were working. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say most of us were working uh, very long hours and uh, doing it gladly and without any, anything like overtime pay. And, uh, you know, sort of in return for that, we had the freedom to, you know, take, take opening day off and go to the ball game or, uh, you know, Go symphony on a Friday afternoon without anybody caring or noticing. Right. Yeah. And um, I think in, in, you couldn't really say that that partook of the atmosphere of the 60s because it's something that Doc Draper had established before, but it, but it went together with it. It, it made the lab a place where uh, a person like me who didn't want to be in a business situation or any sort of regimented situation could flourish. Um, and of course, as you hint, there there were interesting times in the culture, and I definitely don't want to set myself up as typical because I don't think I was typical. But then, who was? I mean, what was typical was the atypicality. Mm-hmm. But bring that into the book, I, I thought uh, partly for comic relief, so to speak, and, uh, and and partly just to sort of set the stage to make it a, a better rounded story. I sort of expanded the book by including my own eclectic, you know, experiences. You know, I wanted on the one hand to make a connection between details, you know, a specific line of code uh, and historic events, but I think it was a vertical connection. Hmm. But I also wanted to expand the story horizontally by uh, by bringing uh, some of what else was 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 happening. And, um, you know, I fell in with uh, fairly left-wing people, which was my inclination anyway. I spoke pop for the first time and thought it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in the course of the project, my hair got longer and I was wearing bell bottoms and so forth. You did see some of these changes as a NASA. You started seeing people in bell bottoms at the NASA facility wearing mustaches. So there was a bleed over that way. And I think maybe as the astronauts got to know me, I think I may have been a little bit of a, I don't want to say a mascot, but I think I, think I was the, you know, I was the hippie. Uh, <laughs> they sometimes saw it a meeting, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and, of course, there was also the whole Vietnam thing going on. And, yeah. Uh, and um, the lab itself was sort of caught in the middle of some of this because, um we did the primary guidance system for Apollo, which at its peak was about half of the lab. Um, but the laboratory also worked on military programs. Mm. Uh, the next office might be working on the Trident missile uh, or, or Poseidon missile. 
And uh, I sort of think that was a good thing. I think it led to technology being sort of pumped in a way across that line between military, secret military and civilian, mm-hmm. in a way was uh, a good thing. And uh, I think the best people probably gravitated to the uh, space program for those who wants to work on uh, blowing people up when you can be working on that company. Yeah, right. Much more inspiring and, and fun for sure. Yep. Wow. Okay. That's, that's extremely interesting. So do you, and you kind of attribute this maybe like, you know, the sixties culture and, and kind of idealism and everything to, uh, it wasn't a hindrance to the space program. It was, it was more of a, it it kind of, what's that? I think it was a plus. Yeah. I think the two things went together. I think the sort of exploration in the culture parallel the, the space exploration and i think they they really were connected mm-hmm. yeah I can, I can totally see that i mean not you know obviously being too young and not being able to experience the 60s or anything but i can from you know reading and, and movies and stuff like that i can i can see how that would be the case and and you know from your story of course um, and then I also like you kind of you you mentioned this in another interview, how you kind of considered the Apollo mission or the whole space program to kind of be a, a collective um, kind of art piece or art collection. It was a bit like that. Yeah. 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 I think I did say that. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, you just kind of just meaning that there's more than just, you know, writing code to stuff. There's there's so many different people collaborating and it, and it kind of is an artistic expression where you really have to be creative and, and yes. And, and the structure sort of fell came out of the, the job at hand words, you know, there were the, the formal organization lines were, were important. There were the sort of uh, connections and relationships, uh, a little hard to describe, but it was, but it was, uh, it was more. Uh, it was more creative than than you could than you could put down in an organizational show. Okay, I see. Whew, man. Well, Don, this is awesome. I love talking about this stuff. It's fun. Um, so you have your book. Do you have that on hand to show to flash up to the camera? Yes, I can do that. There we I, go. Sunburst and Luminary. Oh, go ahead. Sunburst. Well, very Apollo memoir, and that's available on Amazon. Amazon um, and some bookstores. Perfect. And there I am in uh, 1968. <laughs> awesome, perfect. So I'll um, I'll throw the link to the book on Amazon, and then we have donisles.com. Is your website correct? Uh, that's correct. That's my personal website. There's art stuff on that. I'm also a photographer and sculptor, and you can also get to the story I mentioned earlier about Apollo 11 on that. Uh, there's another website, sunburstandluminary.com. Those words run together, sunburstandluminary.com, mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, more closely related to the book. Okay. A series of photographs in there, for example, that aren't included in the book. Right. The book does have eight pages of photos, but uh, some additional um, shots are there, which uh, your, uh, your viewers might find interesting. Yeah, the, looking at the photos is awesome. It's so fun to really see that stuff. Um, so I'll definitely throw links to all that stuff so people can check it out and click on that easily. Um, and then just, you know, kind of to 
to end this, I mean, what are your, do you have any parting thoughts to, you know, you know, us now, people my age, engineers or, or coders who are kind of looking and, and maybe we're heading into this new age of, of exploration, heading to, to Mars or something like that? Well, um, I, I, I don't want to be a negative person, but there are a lot of trends in the world today that are, it can't continue. But, uh, you know, I, my vision of the space program is, is something that can help us, it's something that can uh, get humanity thinking about things other than competing with some other part of humanity. Um, so I think it has that uh, more than inspirational. I think it has the ability to sort of change the, 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 the paradigm. Um, whether it will happen or not um, is a question. You know, I don't. I think the space program has synergies with the environmental and, and energy goals. Uh, it gives us a perspective on the Earth that that, uh, that is valuable. Um, so I think the space program in the future can be a force, a positive force. Uh, whether that will be able to overcome all of the negative forces that we see around us is a question. And uh, I don't know the answer of it. Uh, to it. I, I think it's really important for people of your generation and younger and for everyone, really, to, um, as we used to say, I haven't heard it so much lately, you know, uh, think globally, act locally. And, uh, certainly a good, certainly a good paradigm. Um, I was at a dinner uh, recently, um, two weeks ago, it was a celebration at MIT of Apollo, and uh, those of us who were veterans of the project including a couple of astronauts that were there, were asked to uh, give a few words of wisdom for, for people who, uh, for young people and for people who might be involved in the space program. And what I said was something I said a little earlier in this interview, that if you see something weird, make sure you fully understand it. You know, have intellectual, have that intellectual honesty. Mm -hmm. uh, as in, and And then... As I, and as I said at the time, instead of explaining in a way uh, like the O-rings and the Hubble mirror, because there were clues to both of those problems that could have been dealt with and wow. avoided the, uh, the tragedy on one hand and the, uh, the problems with Hubble on the other. Mm -hmm. But weren't run to Earth. They were explained away by instead of being understood. I think to some extent that's because of a more managerial sort of culture is uh, taking the place of the more bottom-up sort of culture that, that I think everybody had in those days, and especially a place like the uh, MIT Instrumentation Lab. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, uh, I, I think that's led to some of the problems that have occurred, and I think that intellectual honesty is, I think, the, the, the great lesson that we should learn from the success of the Apollo program. I like it. Cool. Well, yeah. Thanks again, Don. This was great. Really appreciate you taking the time and, you know, sharing your story and experience with everyone. So thank you so much. Well, I enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, cool. Have a good one. All right, Don. Thanks. You too. Well, there you go. Episode 58 with Don Isles, only part one of the moon landing 50th anniversary series. 
three more parts to come. Stay tuned. They're coming out in the next week or two. Uh, So make sure you hit the subscribe button. And uh, just thanks for being here and listening to the whole show. Really appreciate it. Uh, If you want to share the word, spread the word, tell your friends, tell your family, do it in real life with your vocal words and tell them about the podcast, or you can do it electronically on social media. That works too. If you do that, uh, make sure you tag me. I'm on Instagram, Curiosityness Podcast. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, all those things too. Uh, send me an email to Travis at curiosityness.com. And uh, give me your thoughts. Let me know what you think. Give me some suggestions, anything like that. Love to hear from you. Uh, But that's it. Again, thanks for being here and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye.